I am gonna. I've been talking for a while about my love for Christian uh, Christian apologetics. So uh, especially these uh, YouTube videos of debates. Really, it's Christian apologetics. It's it's, it's theologians or people who are studied answering the tough questions. Well, sometimes they're simple questions, but tough questions. And I watch a lot to do between atheists and Christians. Although there is also you know debates between others. But what I like about it is if, if you really would take the time to listen to some of these, if you don't already, the nice thing is, is, you know, if I were to ask you tonight, why do you believe in God, what kind of answer would you give me? Why do you believe God's real? Do you, do you have one right off the top of your head? Do you, or let me ask you this, do you have proof? Why, why do you serve a God if you don't have proof? Right? And Christian apologetics are really providing, providing that proof to, uh, to, um, to those who may ask. He asked the question, is, isn't the Bible historically, you'll hear this question asked a lot, isn't the Bible historically unreliable and regressive? Isn't the Bible no longer really um, all applicable to today's culture? In Luke, uh, the book of Luke, chapter 1 and also in chapter 24, one of the things that, that most troubles people about Christianity is the Bible. I mean, I mean there, there is a search for truth. And, and here's the thing. If, if somebody says, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, well, they're making a truth claim. Christianity is a truth claim. We're, we're saying that there's a God who is real, who loves us, who we serve, who one day we'll see if we serve him. And so that's a truth claim. And someone who says, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Well, they're making a truth claim too. They're, they're saying that that is absolute truth is just science. Well, science is based in philosophy. And, and if they really understand what they're saying, that you can't have science without philosophy. Because if you say, I believe in science, well, that's a truth claim. You're now, you're now dabbling in philosophy. But some may say something like this. There, there are many good things in the Bible, but you shouldn't take every word of it literally. Anybody ever watch uh, Pierce Morgan, whatever his show is called? Watch, uh, he's British, watch a little bit of that. See, we don't have cable, but I catch that on YouTube some. And, and I mean, he just hammers. He comes against Christians. He's, you know, if you're talking about politics and conservative and liberal, he's there very far liberal. But he would say, he says this often. There's many good things in the Bible, but you shouldn't take every word of it literally. I've heard him say that almost verbatim. And I've heard it said in college, from college professors, uh, from uh, well-known public speakers, atheists. There's great things in the Bible. There's things that are probably good for your life to follow, but you shouldn't take everything literally. And I heard this, I've heard this for many years myself. I never, you know, quite sure, I never was quite sure what they meant exactly. I mean, I never got into the nitpicking about what are they saying you should leave out. But I have now come to realize they're, they're saying this. This is what they're saying. They're saying there are many good things in the Bible, but you shouldn't insist that everyone believe and follow everything in it. Because there are some things in the Bible that are just wrong, is what they would say. Things that are historically unreliable. I'm going to stop there for a minute before I go on with what they would say, because I, I could see a few eyebrows raising. And especially those that have grown up in church or have been a Christian a long time. But I'm going to ask you again, then, then, okay, prove what you believe. 
prove what you believe. Because if you're going to say that everything in the Bible is good for you and is true and is right, then prove it. And this is where, as Christians, we're not here to get into arguments. In fact, Scripture talks about when the disciples went to a town where they just rejected completely, dust, dust, off, the, dust off your shoes and keep going. But we also know that we're supposed to be ready in season and out of season to give an account for what we believe. And it wasn't long ago we, we had a sermon similar to this to, to dig into, but it was more in the concept of, of not just relying. I didn't, we didn't get into really any answers. We just said you cannot rely on just because the Bible says so in this world right now. One thing I was thinking, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a, what worship leaders go through in culture today. You, you can't try to bend to fit culture only because then you're just chasing after getting a crowd and entertainment. But at the same time, if you ignore what is drawing culture to, and you don't let the Holy Spirit influence you that in, in that, you'll, you'll lose a whole generation. The simple truth of the fact is a lot of churches die because people say, well, this is good for us and it was good back then when I was in church and I like this and this is what we're going to do and, and that's the blessed thing and that's what will get people on the altars and crying and all that. It's not true because culture changes. And the same thing that will get someone's attention and grab their heart, the gospel is always going to be what should be grabbing their heart and getting attention, but, but we have to be able to answer we have to be able to answer the tough questions from the culture we're dealing with now. The questions that get asked by this generation will be different than the last generation. When the Bible holds, they'll say things like the Bible holds within it legends. We'll use that specifically. That's a popular speak right now. The Bible is a book of legends. Legends. And we don't know what really happened or what was actually said. Much of the Bible is culturally regressive and promotes certain views that are best left behind. One of the you, you, you know, you're now you're getting these uh, younger people that in college campuses that they're hearing things and they're getting canned things that they don't really understand, but they'll say, so they'll pick on things and we'll get into this a little bit like, like uh, oh, the Bible promotes slavery. Uh, oh, if you're going to say you're going to believe on the Bible, did you know you can't eat shrimp and you can't eat this and you can't do this and you can't wear that? And they'll go through all these cultural laws of the Old Testament. So for these reasons, there, there are good things in the Bible, they may say, but don't insist on it being entirely trustworthy and completely authoritative in everything it says. What do we say to that? This, I want to give you some ammunition tonight. If, if you don't spend time on it, it's okay, I'm not trying to condemn you, but if you don't spend time formulating what your answer would be to these, then, then let me help you with that. What would we say to that? Well, I'd like to entre, uh, argue the contrary, of course, of everything we said people are saying that, uh, that, that don't put stock in Scripture. I, I would like to argue that you can and should trust the Bible historically, culturally, and most of all personally. You can and should trust the Bible historically. First, you, you can and should trust the Bible historically because many people today say the Bible, especially gospel uh, accounts of Jesus' life, was concocted by political winners uh, who who they'll say things like who can ever really know what the original jesus was like they say the idea that he claimed to be divine and did miracles died on the cross was raised alive and people saw him all of those ideas those accounts were written later by church leaders who were trying to consolidate consolidate their power to build a movement 
It's like teaming up together to try to... So they're saying they concocted this, and this is how they decide to have a, a build a movement and have power. They'll say, we don't know really what happened. They, they suppress the evidence of a, the original Jesus who was just a human teacher. I'm taking excerpts out of things that I've heard said on these that are the, the well-known thinkers of today, that if you watch some of these debates, these are the people that they'll, they'll draw crowds of a thousand to hear the debate. Well-studied. And these are the things that they would say. Well, what do we have to say to that? I would say, we'd have to say it's not a fair assessment. That it's not actually right. What happens is, is that many times, those who don't know very well, especially on college campuses, where maybe they grew up in church and they don't know the answers for why they believe what they do, and then they get in there and they have this atheistic professor who says, well, you got to understand that all your religion was concocted by religious leaders who came together and tried to, to build a powerful movement, and it was well after Jesus actually lived, and so we don't really know what he was like, but that's not true because they are hiding key evidence. There's actually several reasons why you can trust what the Bible says about Jesus, and I want to mention just three. First of all, the New Testament accounts of Jesus were written too early to be legends. They're written too early to be legends. I mean, you look at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, and Luke has written an account of Jesus' life, and notice what he says to his readers. I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I have checked what I have written with eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. So this isn't a guy writing a book 500 years after. This is someone who has interviewed, talked to eyewitnesses, and wrote the account. Luke is saying that even though he is writing 30 to 40 years after the event of Jesus' resurrection, a lot of people who heard Jesus was still alive, who saw that Jesus was still alive, were still around. And he's inviting anyone who reads the words to check his sources. Now you think about logically, with the events that happened with Jesus and how it really turned that world upside down for a while, and after the Acts account, and they went out and he had people being persecuted for their faith, it makes sense that there's a 30, 40 year period before someone sits down and says, you know, and of course we know we believe God inspired them to do that, but they sit down and say, let's write all this down. But 30, 40 years after Jesus, you've got those 10, 15, 20, 30 year olds who are now in, in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, 60s. You've got these folks who at that time, uh, you know, it's still very fresh to them. I'm 44, and I can, I can remember 14 years old. I can remember that, and there's many people who can have better memories than me. But writing even more recently than Luke, in other words, even closer to the events of Jesus' life was Paul. He wrote his letters only 15 to 20 years after Jesus' ministry on earth. Only 15 years. I, I, you know, we got our house on a 15-year note, and we've been in almost three years, and I'm, I'm getting excited about how quickly, thinking, you know, how young I might be to if I can successfully pay that house off early. I mean, young's relative, right? I'll be in my 50s, but pay it off. 15 years, 15, 20 years, Paul's writing, and he's also got eyewitnesses. So this isn't, you know, you'll get fed a line from people, and if you don't know, then they'll be able to run right over you with it and say, Oh yeah, the Bible's written by men way after and, and how do we know if they said it was, how do we know if it was accurate? We can tell them, well, 
there is proof, there's evidence that some of this was written only 15, 20 years, 30, 40 years after. And they, they were written after talking to eyewitnesses too. Now, I believe in the inspired word of God, and that's why we believe it's the Bible, but, but I'm telling you, in the culture today, you're going to get challenged on how do you know the Bible's accurate. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, too, says, many people saw Jesus appear to them after his death. At one point, he says, Jesus appeared to 500 people at once. And Paul goes, then goes on to say, in essence, most of them are still alive, and you can still go and talk to them. Somebody give me a major political event about 30 or 40 years ago, or a historical event in the United States, 30, 40 years. Yeah, well, you're not old enough, but there are people here that could give me one. Come on, 30, 40 years ago, where, where we're at, we're, two, we're 2017, right? So, Watergate, Watergate. You know, we have YouTube, we have the internet, and you could go find people living now that, that watched all that happen, right? Yep. And you could talk to them, and they could tell you. Some of them may watch it through news media, but you could talk to people who are probably even there. Do you know that when I was on the security team at James River Assembly, they had uh, Tom Snow, who had been a federal marshal for 30-some years back then. This would have been early 2000s. And he uh, had, um, no, not water, uh, what's the, uh, well, not, not a, yeah, wa well, Watergate. Watergate was one he did security detail for. So there's literally a man I'm talking to that was there when those trials were going on. So when people are challenging you about the, about the writings of the Bible, you have to tell them, say, hey, listen, do, did you have history class? Did you read any history books written by men about things that happened before they were born? And how did they know? Well, they looked at evidence and it went back to eyewitness counts. It's the same thing we have in the Bible. There's a, a, this longer, several thousand year spread, but you're still dealing with eyewitness accounts. And it's written. And it's a surprising, but many Christians don't know that. If they were asked, they wouldn't know how, how soon some of the, the Bible was written after Jesus died. Because here's the premise. There's, there's several things that if you can prove are true, then you prove Christianity. One is... They're like Jewish people that don't accept the New, New Testament. If you can prove the New Testament's true and it references and aligns and confirms the Old Testament, then the whole Bible's true. If you prove the New Testament, you've proved the whole Bible. You prove it's true because, because the basis of the Old Test, Testament is proven out through the New Testament. Everybody getting this? Now, I'm not encouraging big debates at work and all, but I'm just saying that you will run in, especially the younger generations that are coming up, you're going to run into them, and when you try to tell them about how God's changed your life, and you tell them their testimonial, they'll just say, well, you've just bought into a bunch of hooey that's put, that was uh, concocted by, you know, they're going to be spitting out the stuff they've heard from these lectures. And they're going to challenge you, but you can challenge them back because there's hard evidence that we're sharing tonight. In an effort... You know, Paul then goes on to say, in essence, most of the people, the 500 are still alive and you can still go talk to them. In an effort to promote the Christian faith, Paul could not possibly have written in a public document that there are 500 people who saw Jesus at once, most of them still alive, unless it was really the case. He, he would have not been just challenged on it verbally, but it would have been written. Paul would have been called out as a liar and 
And how many know that the books that are written that are proven to be a lie, they don't last very long, do they? And the hymn Paul is quoting had been written by someone even earlier than that. We, we know that people were already worshiping Jesus as God. They believed his claims to be God, believed the miracles, believed the crucifixion and death, believed the resurrection appearances. It's not like Paul was writing something to start the church. You know, you know we may think sometimes when we're reading Paul's writings, oh, this is what started the church. Well, Paul, yes, he started the New Testament church, but the resurrection started the church the New Testament church, because people who are eyewitnesses be believed and begin to, to follow him and worship him as God, Jesus as God, before Paul even wrote. Having, the, in the Da Vinci Code, author Dan Brown depicts Constantine as having basically decreed Jesus' divinity in 325 A.D., so, so the Da Vinci Code is trying to say that really Jesus wasn't even called divine or God's son. He wasn't really truly God. And that wasn't called until 325 years after Jesus died. But it's not true. But there are people who are buying into that. I know that's, uh, that movie came out and it's kind of old news. But people still, still will reference and talk about the Da Vinci Code. See, this is suppressing all evidence of Jesus' original life as a human teacher, but, but as we have just seen, the documents of the New Testament are way too early for that to be true. Not 325 years, but 15, 20, 30, 40 years. Well, many people say, well, the Da Vinci Code is fiction, and most people who read it know that the material isn't true. But there are many who think that the notion of the divinity of Jesus was later, a later teaching that suppressed the early teaching of, of humanity. That in other words, that it was all concocted 325 years later just so that now people would be worshiping God, putting money in an offering plate, and there would be powerful leaders who would control them. There would be religious control. In fact, after reading the Da Vinci Code, one historian had this to say about Brown's account. Dan Brown says that when the Emperor Constantine declared Jesus divine, Christianity won the religious competition in the Roman Empire by an exercise of power rather than any attraction it exerted. In actual hist historical fact, the church had won that competition long before the time it had any power, when it was still under sporadic persecution. In other words, Christianity was gaining followers when Christians were getting killed for what they believed. This wasn't the Christianity came about after, after you know, uh, Constantine. And if a historian were cynical, you'd say Constantine chose Christianity because it had already won, and he wanted uh, to back a winner. In other words... Um, you know, then some will say, okay, well, you say that it wasn't... Con well, I say Constantine, since it was gaining ground, then, then he's the one that really kind of made it popular beyond that. See, the dates for the writing of the New Testament documents essentially show that everything about Jesus, his words, his death, his resurrection, his claims to be deity, really happened. It's the miracles that people dispute, and that's another thing. If you can prove that, that miracles are true... Then you prove God's existence. There's four things, really. We, we'll do this on another sermon. But there's, there's a, a popular apologist that he always gives a talk about four things that if you prove them, then you prove Christianity is true. One, that God exists. 
I'm sorry, one that God, I'm sorry, one that God, that, that uh, the creation account, that God exists, that miracles are true, and the New Testament's true. Because they improve the whole Bible. Do you know that actually some of, some of the young people that are buying into atheism don't even realize that some of their idols, the popular atheists, are now agreeing with Christianity on at least one basis that they believe now that the universe and everything in it, including us, came out of nothing. That all matter came out of nothing. That, and if it came out of nothing, that had to be something that was, that was powerful, something that was, um, that, that was made from nothing. So in other words something that was not made of matter, um, that, that it was powerful enough to create it, that everything came out of nothing, and that there is some design to it. Now, that's a crazy thing, because before with evolution, a lot of times it was just everything's happenstance. But, but the hard questions keep getting answered, and they're coming to at least an agreement that they won't say that there's a God, but they're describing God. I mean, how does something come out of nothing, right, that existed before everything we know, that's powerful enough to make it happen, that's not made from matter or anything else. They're describing God. But uh, the generations coming up, they're buying into this. Some of them are actually using old arguments that aren't even followed by the people they idolize anymore. So when you are challenged on your belief and someone saying that they are atheist and they start popping off about evolution all that, you need to tell them you need to read up because even some of those that were pushing evolution don't push evolution anymore. There's too many holes in it. There's too many problems with it. See, there is a fifth, if I could add one, there is a fifth thing that if you can prove that there is absolute truth, then you also prove that God exists, that God's real. Because if you take away absolute truth, in other words, Hitler killing 6,000 Jews. Now, if there's not a basis for absolute truth, then him deciding to do that, and you say it's wrong, that's your opinion, and his opinion are different, but who's right and wrong? And this is another problem for atheism that they can't solve, they'll talk circles around, but they can't solve, is what is the basis for our morality? If there's an absolute truth, it has to have originated somewhere. And we'll try to say, well, it's just the majority of a culture. They decide what's best. Killing people is not good for populating and pro being productive and all that. But what if the majority decides that it is good to kill some people? Like unborn babies or people who have disabilities or things like that. So, so there's big holes in there, in there and they're having to wrestle with this because you, you have to point back to something who ha of an absolute truth. And so the dates for the writings of the New Testament documents essentially show that everything about Jesus' words, his death, his resurrection, his claims to be deity, they really happened historically. Historically. So if you were to be in an argument with one of the well-known um, atheists of today, this is not where you two would disagree. They would not disagree that Jesus lived. They would not disagree about what Jesus said. They would disagree about the miracles and that his deity, but they would not disagree that he claimed to be deity. Anyone could write documents two to three hundred years later when, when all the eyewitnesses are dead, when, when everybody that was there is not there to refute it, Right? I mean, I could write a whole book on the Holocaust, right? And, and I, I, there's still enough people closely tied to it, grandkids or whatever, or maybe even one or two living, that I couldn't make a bunch of false claims about it without getting called out on it. 
So the fact of the matter is, it is very advantageous for the uh, for those who don't believe in God to try to sell you on this that the 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 belief in Jesus being deity and all that didn't start till 325 years after his death. Obviously, all the eyewitnesses would be dead then, and then they've got a basis to make their truth claim. But they're wrong. A person could not say Jesus was crucified and then resurrected when thousands of people were still alive who had seen whether he had been or not. If Jesus hadn't been crucified, if there hadn't been appearances after his death, if there hadn't been any empty tomb, if he hadn't made these claims and these public documents were just going around claiming all these things to be true, Christianity would never got off the ground. They would have been called on it enough then by people who mattered and it would have been snuffed out. A second thing about this, the New Testament documents are too counterproductive in their content to be legends. The, the theory is that the Bible doesn't give you what actually happened. Uh, instead, what you have in the Gospels is what the church leaders wanted you to believe happened because this is the view of, of Jesus that helps them consolidate their power. In other words, for me as a minister even today, you know, they're trying to say, well, the reason it was written the way it was is to help you out. But the truth is that from a literary stance, that those who, who study literature and historical literature that are different time periods, because literature changes. Like jokes today are, would, were not funny, would not be as funny 50 years ago, right? If you try to tell 50-year-old jokes, maybe one or two is funny. But culturally, they start missing something. So literature... And how things were told and passed on would change as culture change. What you have in the Gospels is what, you know, they're saying what you have in the Gospels is what the church believers want you to believe. Really, if I'm a church leader living about 70, 80 years after Jesus and I'm concocting these stories, would I record that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked the Father if he could get out of these events that were about to take place? Would I really want my Messiah, who's supposed to be the one to kick tail and take names and free his people of all captivity forever, would I want him begging the Heavenly Father to let the cup pass from him? And see, these things don't always get brought into debates, but the truth is that's, that's a hole in their theory too because if they're trying to say this was written, are you following me? Everybody follow me? If this was written as a power play, Christianity was, the Bible was, so that religious leaders could control people and get financial wealth and all that, then it's very problematic what they were writing because it made the Messiah out to be, have weakness. Would I put in my account the moment where Jesus looks up from the cross and says, you've forsaken me? Would I put that in my narrative if I was trying to create a powerful, controlling Messiah, right? Such passages are confusing and offensive even today, let alone the first century readers. If I was making these stories up, would I have included verse 24 of our text today that, that those who first saw Jesus raised from the dead were women? Another thing that doesn't get brought up, especially from the younger folks that are buying into this, because part of the strategy of the well-known speakers, atheists, is to avoid these topics. So you're not going to probably, you're going to catch them off guard. You say, why are the women the strong one in the story in a culture where women's vote didn't count? 
women's voice did not count. But yet they're the ones that went to the tomb. They're the ones that really that, that become out as a strong one. The men are running. The men are, are not the strong ones. Those who first saw Jesus raised from the dead were women at a time when women's testimony was not admissible evidence in court because of their low social status. All right, I'm not looking for accolades for me, but I just, I'm, I've got some blank stares. I, I know it's a Wednesday night and people have had a long week, but is this, is this helpful? Are, are you understanding that you, are, that you are called to give an account for what you believe and that these are tools that you will have that, that when people challenge, why do you believe what you believe, you now, if you're paying attention, you now can say, look at, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. I mean, they're calling the women out to be the strong ones. This just culturally, in a in literary sense, they would not have written it this way. If you were making these stories up in an effort to consolidate your power, you would never make women the eyewitnesses. And all four gospel accounts say original line of witnesses were women. All four of them. So four, four different writers, and they're all given that account. So consider also the character of the leaders of the early church. When you study the lives of the apostles in the New Testament, they look like jerks. They look like fools. They look slow of heart. They look like cowards. They look terrible. Why would you write? I mean, that's another thing that literary experts would say. A writer is not going to show a bad light on, on his peers because it reflects on him, especially this time. There would be a pride issue there. And so, so there are evidence even from literary experts who are not trying to say, I'm a Christian, I'm going to prove this to you. They're just going to say, listen, from looking at writings of this time outside of the Bible, I mean, I would tend to believe that what they're saying is true, or at least they really, really believe it to be true themselves, or at least because they wouldn't write this way otherwise. I mean, they're embarrassing themselves, culturally, historically. I mean, this is not good for them. So these are proofs, too. You have to look at the document. You have to look at the Bible also as a, a document of, of proof. If you're a leader of the early church, you wouldn't make up stories that highlight such unflattering features. Of course you wouldn't. The only possible explanation for these features being listed in the text is because they're true. The only, they, they're totally counterproductive for the power of the leaders of the early church. The New Testament documents are too counterproductive to be legends. And finally, on this particular topic, the New Testament documents are too detailed in their form to be legends. There's too much detail. And one of the problems with saying that the gospel accounts have to be legends is that we don't even know much about ancient uh, we don't even know about much about ancient fiction. The novel or the short story in which you have uh, realistic fiction, fiction written about, like history, is an invention of the 18th century. So that style of writing where someone's making up a legend doesn't even come till the 18th century. So it wouldn't even be normal for their time to even write like that, to write legends. In ancient times, legends were not written like that. You would never start a myth with an invitation to the readers to test the facts. It would just be stated as a fact, and you would not have any room in the writing or be challenged to check out whether it's true or not. If you read Beowulf, which I had to do in school, anybody have to read Beowulf? No weird legends, right? You read the Greek myths, the Roman myths, Go read anything from the ancient world. They don't start out the way Luke begins with a challenge 
to see if it's true. C.S. Lewis was an expert in ancient literature, and he had this to say when looking at the Gospels. He says this, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. With the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is historical reportage, or else someone unknown, some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. And the reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. In other words, if you are someone who studies literature, then it's very easy to see by the way this is written that, that this would have to be an anomaly, like this person that wrote this, and we got four different, you know, we got these four gospels backing each other up. So it'd be four different people in their time that were just well out of their time, that they just invented something that wasn't invented yet. So here's the point the New Testament documents don't have the form of legends, they were written too early. The, the accounts are too counterproductive and they don't match the fictional style of the day. So you can trust these accounts historically. They tell you what really happened. Here, here's another thing. You can and should trust the Bible culturally. Now this is going to be more difficult. And, and in the amount of time we have tonight, I'm going to do my best with it. But, but listen, you are getting challenged whether you realize it. What I'm saying right now is you are getting challenged on the Bible being culturally accurate. Every, every time you read a Facebook post that is anti-God or anything, you're reading where, where there are people making truth claims that are saying the Bible cannot be culturally relevant to us. So first of all, you can and should trust the Bible historically. And second, you can and should trust the Bible culturally. In recent years, I've noticed that more people are troubled by the cultural aspects of the Bible. That's why even in our Christian churches, our evangelistic churches, we're seeing people who are bending on uh, topics of homosexuality and that and, 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 and an effort to try to be accepting of the people. They, they are no longer just hating the sin. They're trying to overlook it, thinking somehow they're going to, to make a difference by ignoring the truth. But in recent years, I've noticed more people are troubled by the cultural aspects of the Bible than the historical aspects we just covered. So, so even if you get into a discussion and you cover those things historically we talked about that prove that there's good evidence that the Bible's true, Jesus is the Son of God, you're probably going to get faced more with these cultural arguments. It's a bigger deal to people. People read things in the Bible that they consider offensive and primitive and regressive. They, they see things and say, look at what this teaches. It's awful. We got over that a long time ago, and it's best to leave in the past. Now, I don't know our teens... What you're experiencing in school, because we're in the Bible Belt, you may be surrounded by a lot of Christians. It may not be as, as tough in like New York. But the truth of the matter is, is it's unpopular among younger generations. There's a, a movement. It's very unpopular to even believe in any religion. But Christianity, number one, the most unpopular. And, and part of it is, is because of you know, the hate speech and things like that. If you are a Christian, then you are a hater. Because there are things in the Bible they say that culturally it's just awful and we're well past that. But see, they misunderstand. And I don't have enough time to go down the list of all the things in the Bible that, are, that offend people, but it's a very long list and it shifts around all the time. But instead, I'd like to give you three ways to handle any text of the Bible that seems to offend you. Actually, let me give you four. There's one, one I want to kind of pre-do before these. I'm going to say this. When people make a truth claim, I don't believe in religion, I believe in science. Truth claim. 
Um, I don't believe in God. I believe in Buddha, truth claim. Um, I don't believe there is a God or anything, and I'm not even sure about science, truth claim. When they do that, put their own claim. You should always test a truth claim to itself. Can it hold to the same standard of what it's challenging? In other words, in other words, um, I don't believe, uh, <clears throat> if they say, I don't believe that God exists, well, say, where's your evidence? Where's your evidence? If you're going to make that truth claim, you have to put it to the same test. When the first on this list, when you encounter a text that strikes you as offensive, please consider the possibility that it doesn't teach what you think it teaches. And, and many of you will say, I don't find any text offensive. I'm, I'm with you, Pastor CJ. I'm a believer. I believe the Bible's real. But the thing is, is I'm, I'm treating you tonight so that you'll see how, how this dialogue might go. But if someone says the scripture is offensive and they pick some scripture, ask them, please consider the possibility that it doesn't teach you what you think it teaches. Notice in our second text that, that the Emmaus disciples are upset. Why? As Jesus is going to show them, they think the Bible teaches something it doesn't. You know, you see these discourses, hey, hey Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? You know, and, and they're wanting him to set up his kingdom right now. The, the gospel doesn't teach what they thought it was going to teach. When Jesus sees that they are upset, he says, you didn't really understand the scriptures. You were not patient with a passage in question. I'll give you a personal example from my own life because even up until I started pastoring, I did not like the account of Abraham and Isaac. I just, you know, even before I had my children, I wanted, that was one of my life's desires, God, I want to be a good father and husband. I want to have family. And to think that my God that I serve and his character and nature I know could do what I felt like was manipulative, you know, what was torturous. To tell a father who waits long for a son that he, now you plunge a knife into him and then stop him. Like, are you playing games, God? And I had a problem with that. And I never wanted an atheist or anybody to, to bring that one up because I, I couldn't fervently, with all my heart, defend it you know, because I, I had problems with it too. Here are all the spiritual he Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews. <laughs> Here are all the spiritual heroes. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And look at how they treat women even. They engage in polygamy. They, they buy and sell their wives. And it was, an awful, it was awful to read the stories at times. But then I read Robert Alter's The Art of Biblical Narrative. After uh, Alter, uh, Alter is a Jewish scholar at Berkeley whose expertise is ancient Jewish literature. And in his book he says there are two institutions present in the book of Genesis that were universal in ancient cultures. Polygamy and pre, uh, well, I always have trouble with pronouncing this, pre, primogeniture. And it's, it's polygamy uh, said that a husband had multiple wives. Most of us know that. The other is that it said the oldest son got everything. The power, the money, the oldest son got everything. In other words, the oldest son basically ruled over everyone else in the family. So Alter points out that when you read the book of Genesis, you'll see two things. First of all, in every generation, polygamy wreaks havoc. Having multiple wives is an absolute disaster. Pause for effect. Socially, culturally, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and relationally. I mean, men, we mess it up bad with one wife. Can you imagine 
forgetting anniversaries or multiple, all those things that go with it, you know, forgetting where you first met, especially, you know, if you've got 100 wives, that could get very difficult, right? <laughs> if you have children by different ones, like who's, whose kid is this? Actually, the one acting up right now at the dinner table, which one of my 100 wives, right? Man, it's a tough crowd tonight. The second one comes to the other, where the son, the oldest son gets everything. In every generation, God favors the younger son over the older. And it's problematic, especially for generations to come up, fairness. Everything is about fairness. Life has all of a sudden become about what's fair for me. Not fair for everyone. It's more every person for itself. Whatever I decide is right for me, that's what's fair. And so a God that is not fair, and you're seeing this older son, he's, he favors Abel, not Cain, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. And Alter says that you begin to realize what the book of Genesis is doing. It is subverting, not supporting those ancient institutions at every turn. When I read Alter's book, then I reread the book of Genesis. I love it because, because it hit me. What if when I was younger, I had abandoned my trust in the Bible because of these accounts in Genesis? What if I had drop kicked the Bible and the Christian faith, missing out on a personal relationship with Christ, all because I couldn't understand the behavior of patriarchs. In other words, if you're in an English literature class and reading some of the old English literature that's maybe several hundred years old or maybe 500 years old, you know, and you're your teacher and you're teaching that and your students, they're taking that, you're not drop kicking out all of literature, your faith in all of literature, just because you don't like the culture of the time. If you read Tom Sawyer and you don't like how some people were treated at that time, it's not that you negate the validity or the, the value of reading Tom Sawyer. It's just that you don't like that culturally. And so we can't kick out things in the Bible because culturally at the time, they don't make sense to us culturally now, but they did at the time and there's still a lesson there. So, so the lesson is simple. Be patient with the text. If it offends you, if someone says that certain texts offend them, say, be patient. Maybe it's not teaching what you think it teaches. Maybe culturally you're having a problem with that, but you've got to understand how relative and how much it meant to that culture and think that we have some things in our culture that are difficult too. Consider the possibility it might not be teaching you what you think it's teaching. Second, whenever you encounter something in a text that seems offensive to you, consider the possibility that you are misunderstanding what the Bible teaches because of your cultural blinders. The Emmaus disciples understandably misunderstood the prophecies about the Messiah because as Jews, they were only thinking of the redemption of Israel, not of the world. They were actually, uh, they actually admit as much in verse, verses 20 and 21, they weren't thinking of the redemption of the whole world and, and therefore they had cultural blinders on. They were trying to read the prophecies and they misread them. They couldn't understand why Jesus did what he did. And in the same way, I want, to con I want you to consider how easy it is for us to do the same. For us just to try to re read them through what we'd like them to say. Simply put. Let me offer you just one case study. One that uh, people consistently mention as a reason not to believe in the Bible. I can't tell you how often, and, and, and let me tell you, I'm going to stop here again, because sometimes I'm preaching these things, and all of a sudden I hear this question in my head, like I would ask this, or I would say this. But it's really easy for us to just slip in right now and say, 
It don't matter. I've already settled my heart. I know this. But I'm going to take you back to what I said in the beginning. Look at the empty seats around you. I'm going to ask you, when we ask ourselves, where's our disciples? Where's our fruit? You have to ask yourself, if what I'm doing is not, is not com, uh, convincing people of the power of the gospel, then, then am I going to blame it on the gospel or just say, well, I'm just the one sowing and somebody else reaps? Or am I going to ask myself, is it maybe because I really need to know more about what I believe than what I know right now? Maybe instead of just being able to quote scripture, I need to be able to give a reason to believe that scripture. And, and, and give it. We, we are coming up on generations where they are not going to just take the answer just because the Bible said so. Here's one that people say, the Bible condones slavery and slavery is wrong, so who knows what else it's saying that's wrong. Piers Morgan brings that one up too. That's very popular on slavery. But does the Bible actually condone slavery? Let me ask you, does the Bible condone slavery? No, but, but do you know how to explain why it doesn't? Here's the thing. Of course it does. Some people would apply. I mean, there's slavery in there. Just look at these passages where Paul says, slaves obey your masters. I mean, what more proof do you need than that? Paul is telling slaves to obey their masters. And there it is. Paul condones slavery. But if you study the, the one book of the New Testament where Paul most directly speaks of master-servant relationships, the book of Philemon where Paul speaks of the relationship between a servant named uh, Onesimus and his master, Philemon, you would see that the servant-master relationship is more along the lines of something you might call indentured servanthood, which is not what we think of slavery that happened in the United States. When you and I see the word slave in the Bible, we immediately think of the 17th, 18th, and 19th century New World slavery. It was race-based. That slavery was based on controlling another race, African slavery. When you do that, when you read it through those blinders, you aren't understanding what the Bible's teaching. Many years ago, a historian Murray Harris wrote a book about what slavery was like in the first century Greco-Roman world. And he says that in the Greco-Roman uh, times, this way he says, slaves were not uh, distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like everyone else and were never segregated off from the rest of society in any way. What's more, slaves were more educated than their owners in many cases and many times held high managerial positions. You think back to biblical times, it's like a cupbearer who was a servant. But they were, they were usually pretty, they had to be very trusted, very sharp. They were in control to make sure nothing got poisoned. You can't exactly taste test, right? Every time. You're, you have a short job. You know, you have, you're, you're not in your job role very long. And from a financial standpoint, financially, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not themselves usually poor and often occurred enough personal capital to buy themselves out. It was a business venture for someone to be a slave, if I could put it that way. Finally, very few persons were slaves for life in the first century. Most expected to be um, freed after about 10 years or by their late 30s at the very latest. Totally different than what, when we hear slavery, what they think of. But that is an argument you would encounter. If you're out there defending what you believe and saying, I can tell you what I believe, and you're challenged on the Bible condoning slavery because it's offensive culturally, so you have a cultural problem 
where there's a cultural roadblock, there's cultural blinders on, you need to be able to understand and express to them that slavery is not all slavery in the way you understand it. You have to ask them questions. Christian apologists would not just go off telling them that they don't know. They'd say, well, what do you think of uh, when you think of slavery? And ask them and get them to explain it. And when they start talking about all the atrocities of the uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century slavery, the race-based slavery, then you can say, well, that's not what the Bible is condoning. That's a whole different type of slavery. It's just the word is used in conjunction, but it's different. In contrast, the New World slavery of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries was race-based, and its default mode was slavery for life, not, not an early release. I'm going I'm to wrap this up quickly. The African slave trade was started and resourced through kidnapping, which the Bible unconditionally condemns in 1 Timothy 1, 9-11 and Deuteronomy 24-7. Therefore, while early Christians like St. Paul discouraged first century slavery, saying to slaves, get free if you can, they didn't campaign to end it. There wasn't this big need culturally for us to end slavery because it would have been financially bad for a lot of slaves. It, it, would have, it was a, a way of commerce, a way, it was a, a, a job that would have just been got rid of that was needed and people actually wanted. That's where we get into, we can get into talking about bond servants where they actually love their master so much that the business proposition went so well that when they're given their freedom in those early years, they say no and they go and they pierce their ear with it all in front of people and let the blood run down the, the door with, with, a, with a gold ring. They pierce their, to signify that I am now forever a bond servant. I am now bonded to my master forever. They had an option and they chose not to take it. So this is a whole different thing. But the 18th and 19th century Christians, when faced with New World-style uh, slavery, did work for its complete ab abolition because it could not be squared in any way with biblical teaching. That's why the 18th and 19th century Christians had to lead, and this is a debate, I just heard this, I mean, in national TV, I heard the same debate, is who was the one that really led the fight against the bad slavery? And it really was Christianity. Some will try to debate that, but Christians... So when you hear someone say the Bible condones slavery, you can say, no, it didn't. Not the way you and I define slavery. It's not talking about that. And of course, several will still point out that people in the South use biblical passages, slaves obey your masters, try to subjugate the African slaves. Sure, that's why some people still say women shouldn't teach in church or speak because they're, they're taking something that culturally, um, we have sound systems. And my dad is one that gave me this explanation and, and, and I love it, is, you know, the women used to have to sit separate from the men in the back. They didn't have sound systems. The men are down there. The teacher's teaching. The women can't hear what they're saying. And then a particular situation happened. They're hollering out saying, what did he say? Remember my joke about the hearing, bad hearing, right? So he got the wife back there. What did he say? Right? And it was interrupting the service, so they had to address that. But it doesn't mean, because we also know Phoebe, wasn't it Phoebe? Dad, I'm, I'm doing a fact check here. because Phoebe, who is a deaconess, and I get, no, no, Deborah. Well, I'll have to come back to you on that. Deborah's judge. I think it was Phoebe. Phoebe. Anyway, but there's an example of, of someone who had a leadership, a woman who had a leadership role that would involve being able to, to speak in church. So, but, but just so back to the whole thing about it, if people say, well, some Christians in our recent history use these 
to condone slavery, the wrong kind, well, it doesn't mean that the Bible is condoning it just because people misused it. Aside from the possibility that a text might not mean what we think it means, and aside from the possibility that it might, uh, we might misinterpret a text given our culture blinders, we must also keep in mind that certain biblical texts might offend us because of unexamined assumption of the superiority of our cultural movement a moment. So, so because of the way we're seeing it, because of our blinders, then we're just going to be naturally wanting to see it that way, right? If slavery is a big alarm goes off when people start saying slavery and everybody perks up because, oh no, that's a big hot topic, then you read slavery in the Bible and you are going to see it in light of what the cultural problems with it are. Many of us read certain passages of Scripture and say, that's so regressive, so offensive, but we ought to entertain the idea that maybe we feel that way because in our particular culture, that text is a problem. In other cultures, passages may not come across as regressive or uh, offensive. Let me give you one example of that. In individualistic Western societies such as our, we re- ours, we read the Bible and we have a problem with what it says about sex. But when we read what the Bible says, I say we do, but our culture does. But when we read what the Bible says about forgiveness, forgive your enemy, forgive your brother 70 times 7, turn the other cheek, don't judge people. When your enemy asks for your shirt, give it him a cloak, whatever. When people, people who are not even believers will say, how wonderful, that's great. We should forgive each other, you know? We, we should do that in our culture because we are a culture that's driven of guilt. However, if we were to go to the Middle East, they would think that the Bible has, what it has to say about sex is pretty good. They just think it's not enough. It's not strict enough in their culture. They would want to see more control from the Bible on, on sexual relationships. And it's because their culture is not an individualistic society like ours. It's more of a shame culture than a guilt culture. So let me ask you a question. If you're offended by something in the Bible, why should your cultural sensibilities trump everyone else's? If someone reads Huck Finn in the Middle East and reads it in the United States, they're going to see it differently culturally. Why should we get rid of the Bible? Because it offends your culture. So let, let me do an experiment for a second. If the Bible really was the revelation of God and therefore it was the pr- product of, uh, it, was, it wasn't the product of any one culture, wouldn't it contradict every culture at some point? In, in other words, if it was not born of culture, the, the truth, if, if there is an absolute truth, remember we talked about that? that the Bible is absolute truth, so it was not born of culture. In other words, its roots are not just coming out of because this is culturally what should should be but there is a divine absolute truth, then wouldn't it offend most cultures? Or not jive with most cultures because, because you're going to read it through your cultural eyes and so it would need to have roots in your culture for it to not have some kind of offense to you. Therefore, when you read the Bible and you find some part of it outrageous offensive, that's also proof that it's probably true. It's kind of like the old adage that the truth hurts, right? If it hurts, it's probably truth. And it's probably from God. It's not, it's not the reason to say the Bible, uh, Bible isn't God's word. It's the reason to say it is. What makes you think that because this part or that part of God's word is offensive, you can forget Christianity altogether? Now listen, young people, you may feel pretty secure in your belief, but there are Christian 
teens who are going to college and in droves leaving the Christian faith forever, statistically right now, because of the assault that they are having hit them against their faith in college. And they will attack and make you feel like an idiot. And if you don't have ammunition about why you believe what you do and the evidence for that, then you, you may be a sitting duck. So you can and should trust the Bible um, historically and culturally and also personally. Third, personally. It's often hinted and sometimes said outright that people who believe in the absolute authority of the Bible and therefore believe that they should submit to it, its authority, have a cold, legalistic kind of faith. And this can certainly be true of some. We know the pharisaical attitude, that uh, prideful attitude that some Christians can get. But I would like to make the case that, that, complete, that a completely authoritative Bible is the prerequisite for a warm, personal relationship with, with God, not the enemy of it. And this is another thing when you're challenged, you can tell the atheist, you can tell the non-believer, say, here's one problem you will have over any other book that you'll deal with, is from the Christian experience, you have to be willing to let it get personal before you can decide whether it's true or not. You cannot look at Scripture impersonally, in other words, that it has no application to you, and be set on that, and it have any power over you. The Holy Spirit works on our heart when we become receptive to hearing the truth. That's why the scripture says only by the illumination of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit can we even understand what we're reading in God's word. Otherwise, people think it's foolishness. Look at verse 32 in our text when, when Emmaus uh, disciples look back on everything that had been said. They summarize it like this. We, we're, not, we're, we're not our hearts burning with, uh, within us as he opened up to us scripture. In English, when we speak of the heart, we are speaking of the seat of our emotions. But in the Bible, the heart is the seat of the whole person. And Greek scholars will tell you that, that this phrase, we're not our hearts burning, speaks of an uncontrollable desire for someone. In, in other words, the Emmaus disciples were saying that they had a life-changing personal encounter with the Lord. That, that it had to be personal. They felt their hearts going out to him. They felt love that they'd never experienced before. And when did they feel it? When the scriptures were properly expounded to them, when they understood what scriptures really meant. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there for a moment, and we may continue more of this the next time I preach on Wednesday night. But I'm going to ask you this. There's a question that many people need to be asking unbelievers around them. If Christianity was true, would you be a Christian? Well, that's not so profound, Pastor CJ. It really, really is a question that you, you should ask because think about it for a moment. Most of them are not actually being asked, if Christianity is true, would you be a Christian? Because there are some you're going to find that will say, I don't know, I wouldn't be. Because their heart is not set on finding truth. Their heart is set on doing whatever they want to do. But you first have to answer, have that question answered. They have to answer that question in the heart. If Christianity was true, if I gave you evidence, and if you were able in yourself to prove out through that evidence that Christianity was true, would you be a Christian? And see what they say. And of course, curiosity, if, they are in, if they're interested, would be, now tell me what the evidence is. And that's where what we talked about tonight is you need to be able to give an account for what you believe. 
You need to be able to give a, a, a true account of why you believe what you believe. If Christianity is true, would you be a Christian? I'm telling you that I've done it so many times. I just believe the Bible because I always have. I know it's true and it's been proved out in my life. And I don't go any deeper than that. But then I run into someone like someone that we've dealt with on our project, a contractor, where they're asking some big questions about God. And I'm standing there, goofy smiles, saying, well, you know, because we try to just make it simple. Like, well, I just know Jesus loves me. He loves you. It's not good enough. They want, they want to know. They want to know what the Bible teaches and what it really means. The questions are being asked. It is our privilege as a follower of Jesus Christ with the hope of the gospel, the hope that that gives them for a life that's changed, to give them the reasons why it's true. I'm not saying just prove it out like from an argument. I'm saying, but no. I, I'm thankful the Lord started putting a hunger in me because I'm embarrassed to say that there's a time in my life I didn't know when the Bible was written. I didn't know how, how there was eyewitnesses that, that, that could give an account when, the, when some of the scripture was written. I didn't know those things. If somebody asked me and they wanted to say, oh, the Bible really, you know, it was written 400 years after Christ died. I'm like, oh, okay. But we need to know. We need to know because, because this word, this word is true. It is powerful to change lives. But we need to know it. We need to know all about it. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to divide your word to, to study, to show ourselves approved. God, to, to be willing to give an answer in season, out of season. And Lord, I just pray that tonight you help me as shepherd, Lord, to help to equip these saints. And that, Lord, tonight, uh, Lord, if, if you would just help me, Lord, to continue to do better and better, that we may grow together, grow in your knowledge, grow in your word. God, these opportunities, these doors are opening with the high schools, with the, with the elementary schools, Lord, the opportunities we have to go bless them. But Lord, but the questions are coming, Lord, because we're trying to reach a generation that's up and coming and they are being educated and they will have questions. And I pray, Lord, that you prepare us and equip us and make us ready in season and out of season, Lord, when we are held to account of what we believe. And Jesus, I just thank you for it and praise you for it. And Lord, as we go tonight and as we rest, I pray that everyone rests well, but Lord, that we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys. And um, Saturday, we're starting on the metal roof. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier. And if you're available to come help, you're welcome. Uh, we're going to try to get that going and uh, get back on a pace to getting in that new building. So love you. God bless you. Hang around and visit as long as you like.